This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Very good afternoon to you. Great to have you along. A little later this hour after the news headlines at half past 12, it's off to the Pastoralists and Graziers Association Convention, which is on in Perth today. And as you'd expect, you will hear a very balanced discussion on a range of different issues at the convention today, from the voice to the future of the live export industry. We'll get to that after half past 12. Uh, Pastoralists and Graziers Association President Tony Seabrook does say that the farm sector is being threatened on a number of fronts at the moment. So all the latest from the PGA convention a little later this hour. Also today and shortly, farmers on the state's south coast have been setting up dung beetle nurseries on their properties, which they hope is going to save them thousands of dollars. Six past 12 here on the Country Hour. And over the last couple of days, we've been talking about the possibility of increasing live sheep exports to the Middle East as a way to quickly move a large number of sheep out of dry parts of the state's agricultural region. But maybe there's another solution. Eddie Z is a Sydney-based entrepreneur. He's working on a plan to air freight thousands of WA sheep every week to China. Eddie, what sort of numbers are you looking at? Well, a Boeing 747 will take about 2,000 uh, live sheep. 77F will take about 1,600, 1,800. I think that's the, the right quantity because it's about two containers of meat, if, if you're talking in meat sense, in carcass. Another reason why we can send it to China is because when you send live sheep to China, you have reduced your processing cost dramatically. Here in Australia, we have to spend about $35 a head. In China, you probably spend about $5 a head for processing the sheep. Above all, all the offals, at the moment, the white offal, the stomach, the runners, the other white-colored offal are not allowed to go to China. But if you send live sheep, basically you have you can harvest all the offal, both red and white, plus the head. The Chinese value the head very much. And the hoofs, the, the people also eat the hoofs and the skin. Skin can be either skin off and skin on. So... If you have a, at the moment, the skin worth nothing. So if we send, for example, doppers, you will be to do, uh, able to do skin on uh, uh, lamb. That will be a premium product. And uh, at the moment, in the whole Australia, there was only one fresh lamb license for China, which is Vivi washing in WA. But if we send live sheep, which means with every carcass is a fresh meat. And the fresh meat will definitely make a difference in its selling price and also the taste, which everybody understands. When you freeze the meat, you always have a problem of losing the taste. So your plan is to get you know, sort of up to 2,000 live sheep on a plane going to China. How regularly yeah. would that air yeah, shipment plan, go out? The plane is – it, it, it doesn't make economic sense whatsoever if we just had 2,000 sheep and that's it. And after careful consideration and calculation, we are now contacting the world, uh, the Chinese airlines, even Australian airlines, to have a regular flight twice a week 
from WA to China. So basically, the fl the flight will come from, for example, Qingdao, China, uh, arrived in Perth, and they pick up the uh, with. I mean, when they arrive, they will bring the Chinese goods. You know, we are buying lots of Chinese goods here, and then we will uh, uh, send a full load of sheep, but not really limited to sheep because eventually we'll be doing wagyu, because wagyu is a high value product. You can afford to pay a bit more for the freight. But anyway, at this moment, we are only considering lamb, not sheep, because uh, sheep is uh, mutton. Mutton uh, has always had a lower price. But if we have lamb, and even maybe baby goats, that would be a much better item to sell to the Chinese uh, niche market, the middle class. And Eddie, how so, many uh, potentially per year are you thinking uh, well, about? You According to the pilot, the pilots and also the the, the company, the air freight company, said it's best to do three flights a week, and that is the most economical way. So two thousand per flight, uh, so six thousand per week, six thousand times forty, is that two hundred forty thousand heads? Two hundred forty thousand head a year. Yep, I, I don't know whether I have told you there is a, another reason why we can do it because the local Chinese government in those regional cities. They are very pro-business. They support business very much. And during the last 20, 30 years, they built a lot of airports. A lot of them hasn't got much work. So basically, uh, if any people bring in an overseas flight from, let's say, from America, from Europe, landing in Qingdao, the government, the local government will, will, will pay you a bonus for about uh, more or less 300000 Aussie dollars per flight, which will greatly subsidize the expenses. That's why... I think eventually, I believe, if we have a long-term rate with the cheap air company, we probably only pay one leg of the flight, the originate you know, from Wuhan or from Qingdao, from Beijing to here. And the, the retaining flight is always paid by the government of China. You're listening to The Country Hour on the ABC WA and the ABC Listen app 11 past 12. Eddie Z is here today. He's a Sydney-based entrepreneur and has a plan to air freight thousands of WA sheep every week to China, which equates to 240,000 head of sheep per year. That's if the plan comes off. Eddie, does this plan stack up economically? It will definitely work. All exporters must meet regulatory requirements under SCAS, the Export Supply Chain yep. Assurance System, to export, you know, feeder or, yep. or slaughter livestock from Australia. Have you got SCAS approval for these air yep. shipments? That's something we already. That's the, the reason I was contacting the Yara Group, uh, which is already doing Australian cattle in the abattoir in Shandong Province. That is why we're sending our flight to Qingdao, because. They already have that requirement met, so uh, it's not going to be a problem for us. And I, I'm personally, I'm an animal rights advocate, and I believe we should treat our animals uh, in a very humane way. What type of sheep are, are you looking for for this shipment? I thank you for that question. That's actually quite a good question, very intelligent question, because we have so many, we have so many breeds. Well, at this stage, I think our first flight, I'm thinking only focused on. Dorpers, the animal which have very uh, few wool or hair, for two reasons. One reason at the moment the skin is worth nothing, and secondly, a dorper is, is very much similar to a goat in, in, in its uh, in its shape and uh, behavior. And when we can probably do a skin or a skin on um, dorper lamb, 
so doper is my first consideration but eventually with the picking up of the scheme because i'm i'm very experienced with skin business i was a tenor so i understand the moment is you know is the bottom of the of this volatility and if the uh, business start to pick up we will be buying some merino names because the wool in china was much more than anything else so i think the picking of a, a, a sheep breed totally depends on the market condition and the, the return for us and what does it look like in the plain, Eddie? I mean, with these, you know, 2,000 head of sheep on board, are, are they well, in crates? Are they roaming free? What's What does it look like? <laughs> I would call them, that's the first business class. <laughs> well, <laughs> well um, I was joking with my friend. I said, okay, in order to satisfy the animal activists and uh, animal welfare, we are going to give our sheep in Australia 6 o'clock in the afternoon a sausage roll of Australian meat, and then they were landing in China in business cars, having a Chinese mean charm, maybe some DMC next morning. So that's going to be a pretty good treatment. Um, so, but the people who air freight live cattle and sheep to, to all over the world, they have designed a beautiful facility. They have the crate are made of timber, and it got uh, absorbent and also plastic at the bottom to collect the, uh, the waste. And it, it just looks beautiful. Now, WA sheep producers are looking for a market to move a large number of sheep, but I guess they don't want to be given false hope about a, a potential market that has little chance of ever happening. How confident are you that this plan will eventuate? To me, it's ironclad. It's, it's something I, I determined to do. To me, the only way to make arbitrary business or mid-business working is you have to be a regular, consistent. If you have a stop and a go uh, operation, you will never make a cent out of it. So how soon do you think the first shipment, air shipment, is going to leave WA? Yeah, I was trying to tell the Prime Minister and also the ambassador to China, seeing that we try to make this as a prelude of his visit. Uh, Six months ago, I predicted that he's going to China. And then now I said, okay, we are going to be the private sector ambassador. We're going to land a plane before he, the prime minister, reaches China. I believe it will be something before the Christmas in December. I think it will be probably early than early December. Eddie, we'll stay in touch. Really good to get your well, the background to this plan that you have. I, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Belinda. Eddie Z, he's a Sydney-based entrepreneur and he's got a plan to air freight thousands of WA sheep every week to China. Do you think it can work? Let me know on the text 0448 922 604 Jim Teasdale is the Managing Director of Aussie Door, which exports Australian sheep goats and cattle around the world. Jim, what do you make of this idea to air freight up to 240,000 head of sheep from WA to China? Do you think it can work? Uh, look, I, I think any new market that you know, adds volume and, and competition in, in whether it be out of, out of Western Australia or anywhere else for sheep is, is got to be a good thing. Air freight is very expensive and that's why there's not a lot of slaughter and feeder livestock sent by that means so yeah i think it's it's, it's a great idea if, if it can work commercially i think it's a good thing for 
that, that we have as many markets as possible. But just running the numbers through your, your head, I mean, economically, do you think it could stack up? As I say, generally, there's not many slaughter and feed livestock sent by air because, because generally it doesn't. The main, main market that we send feeder and slaughter sheep and goats to is Malaysia. And they, that's been a, a long-standing, consistent market. I think that's ten or twelve thousand head a year at the moment, and it's been up to twenty or more. But it's much closer, and it's it's. Um, I believe that air freight subsidised as well, and it's they go out of both the east coast and the west coast, so it's you know, it's, it's not huge numbers. Sending you know, hundreds of thousands of sheep anywhere, the most sensible um, from a logistics and a commercial perspective would be to do that by sea and I've, I've spoken to people about sending sheep by sea to, to China in the last 12 months as well but I mean if, if, if it can work by air by some means then that that would be fantastic but I, I think it would be challenging commercially. What, what happened to those conversations then that you had about exporting sheep out of WA to China? What was the end result of that? Oh look, I, I guess it goes in the in the box of many conversations we have with many different markets over the journey, and they probably increase when when we see a softening in commodities here, whether that be beef or or lamb or or livestock, camels. When there's a bit of news about about camels in the desert, you know, walking into communities, we, we see a peak in in inquiry around those times as well because people think they're cheap, but. The, the reality is live exports, very, very, regardless of how it's done, is, is quite expensive. It's a low margin, high commercial risk business. And, and when all those parts of the supply chain are added together, it gets inherently more expensive when, when you add the regulation and you add the, the logistics and, the, and all the steps that are involved. It's, you know, it's, it's not as, as simple as, as a few sheep out of the sale yard and chuck them on a plane and all of a sudden we're, you know, it's, it's much cheaper than and sending chilled or frozen boxed product. With the federal government policy to phase out the live sheep trade by sea, do you think that opens opportunities or more opportunities for air freighting livestock out of the country? No, I think it closes. It, it, that's an opportunity now. Air freighting livestock's an opportunity now and, and it, it will remain so. Any market we're looking at closing or any outlet we're looking at closing is, you know, is, is not a good thing for, for competition or for producers. If this is a reality, I see as an opportunity to grow the pie, not to, not to replace something that's already working very well. And do you get concerned with that sort of talk about, you know, a policy to end the live sheep trade by sea? Do you get concerned that that has flow-on effects eventually to air-freighted livestock? Absolutely, it it reduces. There'll be people now looking at whether they whether they even bother running livestock. Policies that that take markets away actually they shrink the pie and they shrink the commercial outcome for for producers. And so they you know rightly would would be looking at you know what's the next best use of my land and resources. And and if you know if we're taking markets away, then that that increases risk and opportunity, and therefore. I would say it doesn't. It doesn't increase the the benefit of of air freight. It actually just decreases the the size of the market overall. So, how do you plan around that with that sort of policy looming in the background? Well, look, I'm I'm not shipping by sea at the moment. Certainly, we have quite a lot in the past. I think uh, live export are certainly uh, on the brunt of that, and the guys shipping out of the out of the west and the producers that supply them are in a much more difficult position than I am. 
but it's it's a concern because you wonder what's next you know what's what's the next target of of activists and the and the politicians whose ear they have if they can do this on without any scientific or real world basis then what else can they do and what other parts of my business might be affected well can you give us an insight into your business where which um livestock and and which markets do you send to jim Yes, yeah, so in the past, I've, I've worked for other companies in, in, in WA, sending sheep and cattle to the Middle East and, and cattle out of the north to, to Southeast Asia mainly. Right now, Aussie Doyle, we're predominantly sending breeding stock largely by air to markets through Southeast Asia. New Zealand, we, we were sending feeder wagyu cattle to Japan quite regularly until recently, mainly breeding livestock of all, all kinds, sheep, cattle, Alpacas to markets all over the world, really. And and what sort of numbers? Uh, it ranges uh, significantly, Belinda. So from from plain loads of sheep, which might be you know sixteen hundred or eighteen hundred head, down to down to just a few head. You know, maybe a, a dozen alpacas. I, I did recently to Malaysia, and I sent a couple of of stud bulls to Malaysia last week out of Sydney. All sorts of scale, but mainly high value breeding stock which which is often you know, smaller consignments and as you said earlier you know around about 10 to twelve thousand head of sheep and goats go out of australia not just here in wa but across the country on an annual basis why is it going to malaysia what's what is it about that market that makes it interesting well that's been a long-standing market it's part of their food security and their uh, you know normal diet i guess it's a long-standing market there comfortable with where their SCAS and their government supports it. So it's, it's quite cost effective to fly sheep and goats there. It's, it's really a commodity market, I guess. It's, it's not the highest quality sheep, but they, you know, they look for something that's, that's healthy and just about protein. And that, that ramps up as it does in, in a lot of the countries that we supply around religious festivals like, uh, so we, we don't supply livestock to Malaysia during Korban because of um, a higher risk of, of, of SCAS, but throughout the year they take sheep and goats for their normal consumption. Jim, really interesting to get an insight into the industry. I appreciate your time here on The Country Hour. Pleasure. Thanks, Melinda. Jim Teasdale, he's the Managing Director of Livestock Exporter, Aussie Door. 23 past 12. The Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. News headlines and then off to the Bureau of Meteorology. That's not far away, around about half past 12 today, 23 past 12 now. Farmers on the state's south coast have been setting up dung beetle nurseries on their properties. As Sophie Johnson discovered, they're hoping bigger beetle populations will help save them thousands of dollars. Dung beetles could possibly be the best pound-for-pound farm worker in the world. In just one night, they can roll and bury livestock dung 250 times their own weight. So now farmers in the Denmark area are breeding beetles in their own on-farm nurseries. Beef farmer Kylie Cook is on the Wilson Inlet Catchment Committee, known as WIC. The committee has been breeding different species of dung beetles and helping landholders establish their own populations. Uh, We've had a dung beetle program for the last two years, so we've been bringing in new species of beetle, which is going to fill the gaps in when the dung beetles are active. Um, We're really fortunate that we've got a really active and well-established summer beetles here, which do a great job. 
of burying the dung and all the farmers know when the summer dung beetles have come out because they notice the flies have gone almost straight away um, which is great for everybody not just the farmers but yeah there's a lot of benefits to the dung beetles they improve soil health they're good for the animals health as well because they're uh, interrupting any parasite life cycles um, also burying the nutrients so we can keep them on the farm and out of the waterways. Yeah, so for two years we've been releasing these dung beetles that are active in winter and we've also brought in a spring active beetle which we're breeding up, um, ready to release now. That's a new one to WA. So how many farmers have adopted using dung beetles on their property? Oh, we've had a really great response locally. Yeah, um, we've released 40 colonies so far. Um, some of those were within our project and some were extra because people were so keen to get more beetles for particular seasons that they wanted to get on top of the flies. So we did have some funding from the state government's natural resource management program and that allowed us to get the winter active species Bubis bison um, and that was the majority of the beetles that we brought in because they were already in Western Australia so it was easier and more affordable to get them. I'm yet to find anyone who doesn't love dung beetles once they get to know about them. In the past, Mark McHenry has relied on summer dung beetle varieties to clean up after his sheep. But just recently, a nursery was set up on his property, allowing multiple species of dung beetles to breed, and some are even busy during the winter. Eventually, Mark hopes to have these super efficient farm workers employed all year round and he sees huge financial and environmental benefits. Well, it's an efficiency thing for us because we're, we're always got a million things on and if the dung beetles are doing my fertilising for me and improve my fertiliser use efficiency, that just makes a lot of sense. It's something I don't need to buy. It's something that doesn't make it into the water. It's just another job I don't need to do. How much are the dung beetles going to save you, do you reckon? I'm not sure exactly how much they would save us. In terms of fertiliser, we'd be able to assume they put a few tonnes of dung into the ground over the whole farm. So, I mean, at a dollar a kilo for fertiliser, that's a few thousand dollars a year, potentially. And it's also keeping it on farm rather than losing it down the river. Now, you're breeding dung beetles here. How long have you been doing that for? Not long. Kylie from Wick brought over some dung beetles and uh, I'm just following instructions. She's the expert. No one's done it to the level of detail that Wick's doing it now in this local region. So we can find out which species do well in which soil types under what farming regime. So, yeah, we, we just don't know. It's a bit of an experiment. Did it cost you much to set up this breeding station here? Um, not much. So we sort of are a host. Um, so WIC was lucky enough to get some funding for that. So we we're trialling how they go. Now, some people paid for their own. Um, I can't remember what that was, but it's if you wanted to set up your own, you're probably looking at about, at a guess, $1,000 for the tent, depending on what you want to do. But you can always make it yourself. And then depending on which species of dung beetle you want to buy in, um, you, you're looking at between like not much and sometimes quite expensive, like $3 each. So it's hopefully we can generate greater populations so we can get lower cost beetles, just like any, any stock. But boosting stock numbers doesn't happen overnight. 
Kylie Cook spends about a year nurturing and growing new dung beetle colonies before releasing them onto paddocks. We bought a sort of a starter kit of the dung beetles that were new to WA. Um, they'd been raising these beetles in South Australia for about 10 years. They've been doing similar to what we're doing here. We've got a little nursery set up where we have them in the paddock. They, we feed them fresh cow dung once or twice a week um, and they're covered in a little shade cloth cover so they can't fly away yet. Um, and then when they've bred up, laid their eggs in the ground, uh, the following year we hope that there'll be uh, about a 1,000 from the 100 that we started with and once we've got a 1,000 we can release them into the paddock and that's enough to start a new population. Kylie Cook from Wilson Inlet Catchment Committee, ending that report from Sophie Johnson. 29 past 12, and earlier in the hour, you heard from Eddie Z. He's a Sydney-based entrepreneur. He's got a plan to air freight thousands of WA sheep every week to China, which would equate to 240,000 head of sheep per year, if his plan gets off the ground. In response to that, Marty says... Enjoying the conversation, is the pending live sheep export ban apply to ships only? Sounds as if air freight will be exempt if the ban ever comes into effect. That's exactly right, Muddy. It's only the the policy, the federal government policy, is to phase out the live export of sheep by sea, not by air. Uh, this too from Nicola in Witchcliffe, lambs to China. I believe the entrepreneur mentioned air freight to Zhangjing province, which has massive human rights issues for the native Uyghur people. Not sure supporting China in that region would be good for Australian farmers or Australia in general would be ideally globally. Uh, cheers from Nicola. Thank you for that. And this from Jocelyn. Let the activists know that from the 16,435 sheep exported live by air, only one sheep fatality. And of the 2,845 cattle, zero mortalities. The text is 0448 29 to 1 with the headlines. Here's Jonathan Beale. Thanks, Belinda. A teenager has been remanded in custody after facing a Perth court accused of murdering a man whose remains were found a week ago in a burnt-out car. 19-year-old Benjamin Jack McLaughlin is alleged to have murdered the 38-year-old man after an incident on Indian Ocean Drive near Cervantes on September the 26th. Mr McLaughlin was arrested hours later after he was discovered by fishermen naked on a crayboat in the ocean off Cervantes. He was not required to plead and is due back in court later this month. The Federal Opposition's spokeswoman for Indigenous Australians has defended the No campaign's key slogan, If you don't know, vote no. Jacinta Nabajimba-Price says the Yes campaign has not provided any evidence about how the voice would improve lives. And two new data sets paint a bleak picture of Australia's rental market. Figures from CoreLogic show the national vacancy rate has fallen to 1.1%. The total number of available properties is at its lowest level since November 2012. Separate data from the property website Domains suggests 70,000 more rental properties are needed nationwide to meet demand. More news, Belinda, at one o'clock. Jonathan, thank you so much for the update. 28 to 1. This is the Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio, WA. 
Great to have you along today. Shortly off to Mount Barker for the results of the cattle market today. Tracy Kilner will have those details. And also getting all the latest from the PGA convention, the Pastoralists and Graziers Association convention, which is on this afternoon in Perth. First, it is off to the Bureau of Meteorology and Luke Huntington with you this afternoon. How's it looking across the Southwest Land Division? Afternoon, Belinda. Yeah, um, pretty quiet, actually. Um, we do have a summer-like pattern at the moment, so we do have that high-moving um, south of the state and there's a trough developing near the west coast. Um, there's just a slight chance of some light showers just south of Margaret River to Bremer Bay today, but there wouldn't be too much uh, in that. Otherwise, um, looking at the satellite, it's all pretty um, clear over the, over the southwest land division today. Um, heading into tomorrow, um, there's little change, except that it'll probably the temperatures will probably start to get a little bit warmer um, right through the southwest land division, so um, especially through the inland part, so through the wheat belt and into the central west there, we're going to be seeing temperatures sort of in the mid-30s through that area, but even in down into the great southern temperatures are going to be sort of near 30 and into the high 20s into the southwest district there, but no um, weather to speak of really in terms of uh, rainfall. Um, and then similar story for the weekend as well, that just troughed deepens off the west coast on Saturday. There'll be continued warmth uh, coming into the southwest land division, so temperatures are still going to be around the 36 or 37 through the inland central west, through the wheat belt, mid-30s through the great southern. But um, on Saturday, we'll probably start to see temperatures um, slowly cooling down along the west coast, so mainly in the high 20s uh, through that area. Um, still no uh, weather to speak of, and Sunday is when we see the trough um, moving inland, so we'll see more of a cool change along that uh, those western parts of the southwest land division. So temperatures back into the mid to high twenties, and all the heat will be sort of through the inland regions and down towards the south coast. So wheat belt, great southern area, some of the hottest areas, and down even into the southeast coastal region around the Salmon Gums region going for 36. Um, down the actual coast itself, um, it won't be too hot. Uh, Esperance itself is going for 32. So those really hotter temperatures not quite extending down right to the coast. They'll have an earlier sea breeze. And then uh, heading into uh, Monday, uh, there's not too much as well. The trough continues to move east. Um, there's just a chance of a very light shower late in the day along the southwest capes with an approaching weak cold front. But otherwise, yeah, nil significant. And how are conditions across the north and the east of the state, Luke? Yeah, through the north and east, uh, the only weather going on at the moment is we're forecasting some afternoon showers and thunderstorms over the northern Kimberley um, and then continuing into tomorrow as well, um, but probably spreading through the uh, the western parts of the Kimberley uh, tomorrow. And then there's a very slight chance of some high base thunderstorms over the inland western Pilbara and the northwestern uh, Gascoigne. Um, but those thunderstorms through that Pilbara Gascoigne are going to be sort of dry thunderstorms, so very high based with basically no rainfall associated with them. Even the storms through the through the Kimberley region not going to have too much uh, rainfall associated with them, so just typical um, sort of um, pre-season thunderstorms, so to speak, for this time of year. And then we see uh, quite a bit of dry air moving through that north of the state on uh, from Saturday, so those thunderstorms um, should clear by Saturday and not expecting any thunderstorms on Sunday or Monday at this stage. Any warnings this afternoon? Uh, no warnings for today, but just a wind warning for tomorrow. Great. Thank you, Luke. Appreciate that. 24 to 1. And in the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning, there has been no rain over 5 millimetres right across the state.
This is the Country Hour. Uh, just before the news at one, it is off to Mount Barker. Tracy Kilner will go through the yarding and the prices for you today. First, though, the Pastoralists and Graziers Association's annual convention is underway in Perth today. Richard Hudson's been sitting in on this morning's proceedings. Richard, let me guess, the voice got a mention. Yeah, just a few times. <laughs> and I'll have to preface this summary of what I heard. You are not going to hear a balanced coverage of all the topics that were discussed, I can tell you that. The speakers were hand-picked. The convention is sponsored by a very large agricultural company that also happens to be very big in mining. I'll let you guess which one that is. But uh, PGA President Tony Seabrook said at the start, I always invite the left to these events, but they never come. (laughs) Although, I will add, State Agriculture Minister Jackie Jarvis is actually going to be speaking this afternoon. Question time could be hot. (laughs) I imagine so. Now, Warren Mundine was one of the keynote speakers this morning. What did he have to say? Yeah, so he's a businessman and political strategist. He's also a proud Aboriginal and at the moment he's probably more well known as the leading no campaigner. This is to do with the voice. I'm not going to summarise his whole speech or anyone's, but basically he feels Labor's policies are all about government dependency, is his words. He's passionate about empowering Indigenous people in Australia and he describes the voice as a poison chalice which needs to be smashed, were his words. So he was born in the 1950s, he doesn't look it, one of 11 kids and his family wasn't well off at all in the early days, but he's a big fan of getting Aboriginal people going to school and working. So this morning he recalled once giving a speech to the New South Wales Aboriginal Lands Council conference and it got him in a little bit of hot water. Unusual for me, I got myself in trouble sharing some of my thinking. I said that farmers made up only 1% of New South Wales population. Aboriginals then, at at that time, made up around 2%. And I asked, who does the government listen to more? Is it Aboriginals or is it farmers? They listen to the farmers. And why? Because they are huge contributors to the economy. I said that it is what Aboriginals need to do to contribute to the economy for our rights to land and sea. 21 to 1. A barrister and former governor of WA, Malcolm McCusker, was also at the Pastoralists and Graziers Association convention today. Uh, what were his key points, Richard? Yeah, he, he's obviously a well-known barrister and philanthropist, but what I didn't actually know is he's also a farmer. He has a property at Kalingri anyway. But in his long speech, Malcolm McCusker summarised What was in a paper he wrote, which in his words went viral, and it was all about why he feels it's not appropriate to make the voice part of the Constitution. He calls the voice concept a scattergun approach to helping Aboriginal people. So he reckons it's a myth that Aboriginal people don't currently have a voice in Parliament or in government and around Australia. And he doesn't actually think the majority of Aboriginal people are in need of the sort of assistance that The Voice is claiming to offer. If on the farm you're a farmer and you find that there are some paddocks which look as though they are phosphate deficient, so you need to treat them with phosphate, you don't put phosphate over the entire farm, 
You only, only treat the areas that are in need of phosphate. Otherwise, phosphate's too darn expensive anyway, as you know. Um, so, to give a special right to all Aboriginal people makes a permanent division of all Australians based on racial ancestry, not on need, simply on if you're an Aboriginal person or you've got Aboriginal ancestry, then you're part of this special group. So I must stress again, that's only one tiny excerpt from Malcolm McCusker's speech this morning, but it's not my role to summarise everything that he was on about. Uh, 19 to 1. Leader of the Opposition, Peter Dutton, was uh, one of the speakers this morning at the PGA convention. What was his message? You might be surprised to hear this, but he was singing from the same song sheet regarding the voice. Um, Like he did last week on The Country Hour, Tony Seabrook had another crack at this convention at the ABC for being biased with our coverage of the voice, and Peter Dutton agrees with him. Uh, Look, I I think ironically... The ABC has done in our case an enormous favour because their bias is so obvious uh, and their reporting so skewed that people realise that something is awry here. At the start of this, the Prime Minister had 60% support from the Australian public. He's turned that into 40%. Now, that's quite an achievement over the course of the last 15 or 16 months. But he hasn't done it all by himself. Alan Joyce has helped him. I think West Farmers has helped him. I think there are other elites that the Prime Minister continuously hangs out with who have been in his ear, the celebrities who are out there, the rock and roll singers and all the rest of it. Uh, but average normal Australians know that they are being fed a diet that just goes against their instinct. Did Peter Dutton say anything specifically about the major issues affecting primary producers here in WA? Yeah, he did. He mentioned how he's been chatting to people all over Western Australia, in Perth, also right out at places like Leonora and even at the Wage in Wollarama. He talked about energy a fair bit, some of the issues. He's predicting dis- disruptions of supply. And yeah, as you'd imagine, he also talked about the live X trade and Labor's plans to phase out the live sheep trade by ship. So Peter Dutton says the opposition supports the whole live trade and he talked about what he calls a knock-on effect of shutting down the live sheep trade. The fact is that it does create uncertainty in a Middle Eastern market where a growing opportunity exists for our exports. And it will have a knock-on impact to other commodities because they'll see Australia as an uncertain partner. Exactly what happened in relation to live exports for cattle in the Rudd-Gillard-Rudd disastrous years where Anthony Albanese was the Deputy Prime Minister. And they looked to Australia in a very different way that they did during the Howard period, or during the Abbott period, or even the Turnbull and Morrison periods. And if you think it's going to stop at sheep, well, I think that's wishful thinking. It will, of course, extend to beef, ultimately, to buffalo, to goats, uh, and to transport of animals over longer distances. The animal activists who have taken a very significant hold on this Labor government, who Anthony Albanese relies on for preferences in seats like Graindler and Sydney, their influence is much greater now than it was even in the Rudd era. And we should be very conscious as a sector about that. So Leader of the Opposition, Peter Dutton, speaking at this morning's PGA conference. And I might add that we have had... Labor on talking about the live sheep trade a fair bit. Jackie Jarvis on uh, not that long ago.
And uh, Pastoralists and Graziers Association President Tony Seabrook would have been up and about uh, making a few key points and he usually saves quite a few gems, some good lines for the convention. What he, did he have up his sleeve this time He's good around? for the zingers, isn't he? Uh, he, he did... Crack a fair few uh, people, uh, crack, crack a fair few zingers throughout the uh, the morning. But he did have a crack at a fair few people as well. Uh, the ABC, as I mentioned, also he had a crack at the state Labor government for its handling of things like the Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act. He thinks vegans and animal activists have too much power at the moment. He said all those things before, but this morning he did mention something that's probably concerning many farmers, and it's a worry that a lot of the decision makers are now being influenced by so-called do-gooders that don't farm. They're his words. He says many farmers feel threatened on many fronts. We now find ourselves entering a world where, where we are told we need a social licence to produce food. Our farming practices are coming under intense scrutiny at every point. A large number of the very necessary chemicals we use are under threat as are many livestock systems Intensive poultry, pigs, feedlots have been targeted by activists. Live export of sheep is about to be banned at a huge cost to the West Australian agricultural industry, and the cattle industry is deeply worried that they will be next. All because some ill informed but very noisy groups are using their influence in the inner city electorates to bully government. The result is policies that will do great harm to the farmers who feed 25 million Australians and 50 million people overseas. In a recent submission to the federal government on food security in Australia, the PGA stated the greatest threat to food security is actually government policy. The agriculture industry is feeling very threatened. So it's PGA President Tony Seabrook speaking at their annual convention, which is still underway here in Perth. I did record some of the Q&As, but to be honest, most of the questions were coming from people who had exactly the same as opinion of the people who you've just heard from. And when I left, speeches were still underway as well. 14 to 1 here on the country, on the ABC right across Western Australia and on the ABC Listen app. Uh, shortly, it's off to Mount Barker for the results of today's cattle market. Tracy Kilner going through the yarding and the prices for you. But first, uh, Richard, in some really sad news, renowned and innovative Great Southern farmer Don Thompson has died age 77. Yeah, towards the end of August, uh, I found out Don was holidaying in New South Wales and he had some health complications which got worse and he recently passed away in Sydney. So Don Thompson's family's farm is just east of Narragin at Tincurran. So it's about 250 k's southeast of Perth. Someone who knew Don Thompson really well was former ABC Great Southern Rural Reporter Owen Grieve. It certainly is uh, very sad news, and I, I know that um, a lot of the uh, farming community across Western Australia will be very saddened to uh, hear of Don's uh, passing. I was introduced to Don when I went to Albany back in 1997 with the ABC Rural Department, and uh, knowing that I was broadcasting to the uh, to the Great Southern, which is sort of from Great Eastern Highway South and beyond that, um, was no good giving people a, an early morning weather forecast for what was happening in Albany because uh, that was always different for what was 10 miles north. So um, I said, can anybody in the middle of the Great Southern, somewhere in the midst of the, of the Great Southern, give a weather forecast each morning or give us a, a phone call to say you know what it's looking like? And bang, Don's hand went up, the phone went off, 
and uh, that was the beginning of it. And uh, every morning uh, for the next 18 years, on the Monday to Friday, I'd talk to Don and we'd uh, talk about the uh, the weather that was at Tin Curran. And uh, Don's wife, uh, Bobby, had a, a compost tumbler, which was just located outside the, the back door. And uh, Don, after saying, you know, what the weather was like, cloudy and grey or, you know, whatever, uh, and we say in the compost tumblers, wet, dry, icy, whatever, and that would give farmers in the Great Southern who knew their distance from Tin Curran and where Don was, just roughly what they could expect. And it made a, a real difference to their planning for the day sometimes because uh, if they they hadn't quite got out of bed but they heard that it was uh, icy, well, they probably wouldn't want to go spraying or something like that. So he did make a difference to a lot of people each morning and the uh, the compost tumbler became a bit historic and a, a bit of a, a talking point. Oh, and I was chatting to agronomist Garen Nell the other day and he was describing Don as being quite an, an innovator. In what way was he innovative? Don was innovative in, in all sorts of ways. He was... Uh, he was very so interested in all of the enterprises that he, he took on, which were mainly uh, grain cropping, uh, sheep. He had he had wonderful sheep. They were big sheep, uh, big wool cutters. Um, he was very much into niche marketing with his grain. He had many, many silos on his property um, with all different uh, grain sample or grain uh, quantities within that he could market in, in a timely way when the demand was uh, there for them. So... He also won uh, awards in, in grain growing. I remember he was a, a, a or a winner of the Golden Grain Growers Award, I think on numerous occasions. But uh, he certainly had uh, amazing records of his of his farm and costs. And he could sort of tell you what a, a litre of uh, diesel cost in 1972 at the drop of a hat. And he had a great uh, knowledge of clovers and uh Come January, February, Don would be out there with about three Horwood Backshore uh, harvesters going, and uh, he was a quite a, a big seller of clover as well as grain and wool. Don was the member of different farming organisations, including WA Farmers Federation, as it used to be called. But some people might be also surprised he was part of the RSPCA, wasn't he? He was um, back in the time when they were there was a big push to uh, stop amusing of sheep don thought well they're not really getting the farmer's point of view here they're getting a, a city sort of reaction as a, a bit of blood and it shouldn't happen so don thought well i'll get myself a a membership of the rspca so he he got on the board and i think he he caused them quite a few headaches i think from time to time i don't think he really won that round but uh, anyway he uh, he certainly put his put his oar in I hear Don was also renowned for being very sharing with his knowledge and his record keeping, etc. But on top of that, he was quite well renowned for some one-liners, wasn't he? <laughs> well, he was indeed. But but in the, on the first point, um, he was very sharing in, in in knowledge. I remember too that if I, I broadcasting out of Albany for uh, for the rural programs, if I'd had a, a letdown, say somebody couldn't front up because of sickness or whatever there were a couple of people but don was one of them you could always ring him and say or when he rang to talk about the weather and the compost tumbler i could always say don i'm i'm five minutes short because somebody's got the flu or something or other can you help me out what, what have you been up to and we could 
have a chat for five minutes without any trouble at all. And he passed on some tremendous knowledge to uh, the younger farming generation. And as you've said earlier, or as we said, that the, uh, the, the, a lot of people will, uh, will miss Don's wisdom because he was a very, uh, he gave wide, wise counsel to uh, a lot of people. As far as the, the one-liners were concerned, because of his um, uh, networks, one I remember through the Golden Growers Awards, he met people from all around uh, wheat-growing states of Australia, and uh, he sort of kept those contacts, and he'd ring people up from time to time, or they'd ring him and they'd have a bit of a chat as to how seasons were you know, going in various uh, areas. And I remember one time this fellow from Victoria said, oh, gee, it's dry over here, Don said things aren't, aren't uh, going too well. We're a bit worried about uh, a drought coming on. Don said, yeah, it's been dry over here too. He said, in fact, I heard the other day that they're thinking of closing three lanes of the Narragin swimming pool. <laughs> <laughs> Former ABC Great Southern Rural reporter Owen Grieve talking to Richard Hudson about the passing of Tin Curran farmer Don Thompson. And a service is going to be held for Don at Narragin on Thursday, October 19 at midday and our condolences go to his family and friends. On the text, Robert says, Don's nickname was Decimal Don and he was a very good tennis player, especially on clay at Tullaban. Thank you for that, Robert. Seven minutes to one and shortly heading off to Mount Barker for... A look at the yarding and the prices at today's cattle market with Tracy Kilner. First, a closer look at Highland cattle. You know, the ones that are super shaggy. They can have exceptionally big horns. And right now, they are a highly sought-after breed. Trevor Perry runs a stud in South Australia's Barossa Valley and went along to last week's Perth Royal Show with his son, who also keeps Highland cattle at Donnybrook in WA's southwest. He says prices have skyrocketed in the last 12 months as the breed grows in popularity across Australia. Uh, unregistered uh, bull went for $17,000. Recently at an auction, one uh, nine-month if I unmated obviously uh, and uh, went for $67,000 so they're sort of sitting between ten dollars and $20,000 at the moment depending on the, their purity and the colour so we've got purebreds in Australia and we call them FIBs or fully imported bloodlines purebreds are graded up from other breeds and there's nothing wrong with them uh, but the full bloods can trace their pedigree right back to the origins of Scotland Alright, tell us about your Highland cattle. How'd you get into it? I actually got into it through temporary insanity. I um, I used to work as a... Oh, I'm recently retired as a registered nurse and I used to work at Meningi Hospital in the south of uh, Adelaide and I saw one in the paddock back in the early 80s and I had no idea what it was. I thought something could escape from the Ice Age. Uh, roll on to 1988 and I'm watching something on the ABC and there was a Highland breeder talking about organising a uh, Highland Cattle Society. Uh, he was at Morelake in Victoria. I phoned him and two weeks later I had my first two Highland cows. Uh, since then the society was formed in 1988 uh, and has grown from strength to strength. Currently we're sitting around 400 and something odd members. I couldn't give you the exact number because I didn't look it up but uh, doing very, very well with membership. Uh, members are in every state uh, and uh, in the ACT. Uh, there's none up in the Territory at this point in time, but uh, 
They do very well in the high country and the colder areas uh, and renowned for their quality beef. Uh, they're higher in iron and uh, protein and lower in fat than most other breeds because they don't put the fat on. They grow very, very good beef. Um, they're also beautiful. <laughs> oh, well, I'm, I'm biased. You're talking to the wrong person there. They come in every colour too. So uh, although red is probably the most common colour, uh, we've got back home uh, and here we've got black, red, uh, white, brindle, yellow, uh, silver dun and dun. So we've got a, a multitude of other, other colours to choose from. And they don't always breed true. So I've got a red cow at home at the moment with a, um, uh, a black calf at foot and a uh, previous uh, mating using the same bull had a white calf so yeah it's, it's always interesting seeing how the genetics throw with colours and uh, the like there, I bet quite a lot of effort goes into getting them show ready I mean with every breed they're all yep. beautiful clean and, and well presented but the Highland having that you know woolly woolly mammoth coat almost what, what goes into it um, a, lot of, a lot of washing a lot of conditioning um, probably a few words that probably should be repeated um, but they uh, uh, they probably more time consuming than other breeds because the um, uh, at the end of the day we've got to um, uh, prepare them so that they are spotless and because they have longer coats they take longer to dry and longer to prepare you mentioned they're very good beef but they also people want them for pets I assume or for paddock, paddock ornaments there's a, a lot of Highland, or a lot of people buy the Highland calves that have been weaned uh, and are steered uh, for uh, basically um, grass grass munchers. Uh, and um, yeah, where I don't know what the six month old calf normally sells for, but a Highland six month old selling at the moment between four and five thousand dollars just as a steer. So not bad money for a six months. Highland cattle breeder Trevor Perry and he was talking to Ellie Honeybone at the Perth Royal Show which was on last week. It's a couple of minutes away from the news at one o'clock. It's off to the markets now where 771 head of cattle sold at the Mount Barker sale yards this morning. So numbers down about 180 on last week. The quality dropped a little bit too along with most of the prices. Tracy Kilner, can you run through the details? Live export was active on the yearling steers, pushing prices up with the added competition. All other categories eased with processors selective and feeder buyers chasing the heavier weight young cattle. Wiener steers sold from 300 to 332 cents and the wiener heifers made from 180 to 268 cents a kilo. The heavier weight yearling steers gained 15 cents, selling from 248 to 328. Yearling heifers eased on last week's gain, returning 150 to 276 cents a kilo. Grown steers returned 164 to 264 cents and the grown heifers sold from 124 to 190 cents a kilo. Heavy cows were down 30 cents, selling from 130 to 146 cents to average 135 cents and the heavy bulls sold to 166 cents a kilo. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Tracy, thank you for that. That wraps up the livestock markets this week. Tomorrow on the Country Hour, Danny Burkett along to go through the wool market details for you. Just repeating the top story today, we caught up with a Sydney entrepreneur, Eddie Z, who's looking at air freighting thousands of WA sheep to China each 
week if you can get that plan up and running. If you want to hear the story back again, do so on the website or on the ABC Listen app. Newstime, one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.